Hi, and welcome to Willow Roundtable Discussions. Willow is an events-driven community where industry experts and entrepreneurs can come together in social settings and share the latest intelligence and cutting-edge technology and investment opportunities. Our group discussion starts now. Thanks everyone for coming. There's all these new faces that I haven't seen before and like a completely different crowd than what we had last week. So cool. And um, thank you, Mox, for letting us host this uh, fireside chat without the fire at Mox. So thank you, Mox. And thanks everyone for coming. I'd like to give the speakers of today a very warm, warm welcome. Um, starting with um, Alex, thank you for being here and, and maybe an intro for yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Amber. I'm, I'm Alex Liu. I run MyCoin, which is the longest running and, and largest uh, exchange here in Taiwan. Awesome. I think um, you really need no introductions. How about you, Peter? Uh, my name is Peter Wong. I work at a well-known crypto exchange in compliance. The, it sounds like uh, BitPhoenix, and uh, we have a well-known stable, stable coin. People are supposed to laugh. That was yeah. a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the laughter, yeah. yeah. I think I had, there's a sound on the button. We'll add that later. Uh, how about Andrew? Hi, my name is Andrew Lin. Uh, I'm a U.S. attorney, um, just kind of a personal investor in crypto and uh, intrigued by the space. And um, yeah, just here to contribute some of my opinions from a legal standpoint. It's always important when you're doing crypto events. And Kelvin? Hey everyone, my name is Kelvin Shen. I'm, I work for a digital asset custodian called Hex Trust, uh, based uh, in Asia. Awesome. So um, thank you, all of our lovely speakers. So let's get the um, conversation started with um, what's been in the news last week about um, Coinbase's IPO. I know you guys have had a lot of discussions on this topic, but what are the thoughts of it? And do you think that this kind of signifies the top of this bull market or is there room for further growth? Like in the crypto space, what does it mean? And what have you been saying to all of the people that have been asking? Maybe start with Alex. Right. I mean, Coinbase being the my coin of the United States, I'm really happy to see them... Uh... <laughs> Nice, nice. Achieve this milestone there. Um, obviously, it's a good thing for all of us, uh, even if you're a hater and um, you've got a mouthful of sour grapes, but undeniably, it's a good thing for the industry. I was a bit dismayed to see so many insiders selling at the top, and they, they kind of brought down the Bitcoin price, I believe. Uh, to your question, Amber, I think there's room to grow, uh, to, to go rather. There's there's quite a bit of headroom um, for, for the Bitcoin price. Um, and, um, you know, where, where does that come, that, that observation come from? I, I just think uh, the, the money printing that started March of last year, I mean, it's, it's yet to abate. It's, it's going at about $200 billion a month. Um, and until that uh, really begins to slow down, I, I just think that uh, inflation's there, whether you want to see it or not. It will also inflate the price of, of Bitcoin, among other things. Well, what, about, what about you, Peter? You seem to do a lot of trading. Uh, yeah. I think the analogy I heard with Coinbase is that this could be the next Netscape moment. For those that are old enough to remember the dot-com <laughs> period, the dot-com period, I mean, like uh, the, the Mark Twain uh, quote, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. You know, like right now, I feel like we're in the middle of a bull run, which probably would be analogous to like 1999. So if you guys remember the dot-com period, that was, uh, was pretty crazy. And, 
you know, with DeFi and all that kind of stuff, where I think we're entering an, a new phase right now. What about you, Calvin? Is this a good time for you? Um, well, for a custodian, absolutely, right? As we typically derive fees from asset side. So, so yes, it's, it's not a bad time for a custodian. But typically, I, you know, with these IPOs, especially with Blockbuster, like Coinbase being kind of the, you know, the, the flagship IPO versus kind industry, the investment bankers typically or the banking um, bankers involved typically time the process quite well. I mean, the IPO is typically usually at the top. So I think about things like Facebook, for example, right? You start out high um, after IPO and you can follow a kind of a dip, maybe even a big dip. Um, but having said that, the overall longer term trajectory tends to be more upwards um, on a longer term perspective. So I feel like this could be another one at that moment. I think Coinbase uh, going public, I, I think it, it, it's, act, it's good. It's kind of like Alex said, for, for the industry in general. I think it allows uh, people who haven't known what's been going on with crypto to kind of be more aware of it just because it's such a high publicity thing. Um, I think insider selling, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Um, I kind of see it as, uh, you know, a lot of them have worked a long time in this. Um, it's a way for them to kind of get their payout for, for years of work. Um, and I'm sure, you know, plenty of them still have a lot of options involved. So, um, doesn't mean that they're completely out of this and, uh, I think if uh, most of you guys probably know who Ark is and Kathy Wood, and if it's any indication, she's been buying a lot of Coinbase. So, yeah. Um, interesting. I think everyone wants to know, you know, um, with MyCoin um, and other so many other uh, exchanges popping up, do you think that there's a bit of a competitive competitive pressure to um, lower their fees in the future? Is that something retailers will expect? Uh, we've experienced, uh, you know, price and margin compression for, for the last many years, so that's not a new phenomenon. Um, but for me, as long as the, you know, the addressable market continues to grow, um, you know, just a figure that I'll share with you folks is, you know, we're adding, you know, anywhere from four to 600 users a day, and that's simply here in Taiwan, right? So um, if, if the pie continues to grow, um, the fees can come down and, you know, we're going to still be doing just fine. I'm also wondering, like, I think a bunch of us on the stage here, except for me, are American citizens, and a bunch of us are, you know, living in Taiwan. What is it, what do you need to uh, set up a MyCoin account here in Taiwan? Uh, an ARC will do. An ARC will do. Uh, if you're able to open a Taiwan bank account, then you can have an account with us. There was supposed to be someone talking about ETFs here, so I'm just wondering if um, anyone has a thought on that, if we're going to see one for Taiwan or even in, in the U.S. in the future. Maybe uh, who wants to take that? Sure, I'll take, try and take a stab at it, but we do have a, a lawyer here who will probably shed a lot more light on that. But um, so f for background, right, I cover custody from Asia-Pacific perspective. So obviously we know that the market, um, you know, is notably missing, at least the U.S. is notably missing a Bitcoin ETF, right? But we know about Prosper in Canada. We know about the ones in, in Europe. It's missing in, in um, Asia-Pacific as well. Um, but what I can tell you is that most of our, certainly our clients, um, you know, they're now getting regulatory approval for Bitcoin funds, right? So the funds are tailored to accredited investors only as well as institutional investors. So clearly the retail piece that's missing, which is what the, the ETF is trying to solve. Um, with respect to regulated, at least in Hong Kong SSC or the Singapore MAS, they, what they typically look for is kind of follow the leader with respect to the U.S. SEC. So rest for sure that there's absolute market demand from, you know, issuers that are looking to launch this um, Bitcoin ETF in, in Asia Pacific. Uh, but obviously, I think the headwind is coming from a regulatory um, 
approval or friendliness with that respect. And I think once and if and when the U.S. SEC does allow the first um, Bitcoin ETF in the States, um, I don't think the Hong Kong issuers or the Singapore issuer will be that far behind. Maybe I can ask you, but um, what do you think will be the difference from like, you know, retail customers buying um, directly on an exchange and through the ETF? Will this make things easier, Andrew? I think, uh, well, first off, the SEC, you know, um, there's been a lot of applications to SEC wanting a, a property ETF. And I'm sure most of you guys who trade know that there's other proxies. Um, you know, if you don't want to buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrency directly, there's other proxies through the U.S. markets to um, be involved, whether it be uh, Grayscale, GBTC or uh, MicroStrategy, MSTR, um, or even more indirect plays like Square, PayPal, um, Tesla, um, or if you want to just be involved in miners, things like that. Um, I think uh, the SEC obviously is going to take steps uh, to look very seriously at a proper ETF um, just because the new chair that they have in place now, uh, Gary Gensler, he's more or less a pro-crypto kind of guy. He's very familiar with it, taught courses at uh, MIT on blockchain. Um, so it's, it's uh, different than his uh, predecessors for sure. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's probably just a matter of time, um, not a question of if at this point, but the SEC is historically slow moving. Um, so it, it takes time. Uh, there's a lot of procedures involved. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think, uh, Winkle Voss, uh, Gemini, they tried to file for an ETF like seven, eight years ago, um, that got declined. A lot of people have tried, uh, got declined and, it's it's not a um, cheap process, so people uh, try it. Um, obviously, it can be very profitable if they can get a proper ETF, um, but people kind of get discouraged because of the time and the cost, and, and sometimes they just withdraw applications, especially if they know uh, the outcome is just going to be a, a denial. Um, but I think the ETF obviously will, will bring um, more exposure to the, to the market in general, and, and hopefully some sort of uh, protection just uh, because some people, they don't want to buy Bitcoin directly. They don't want to worry about custody issues. How do I store it? How do I protect getting hacked? How do I, you know, I don't know how to use a cold wallet. What's a cold wallet? What's a hot wallet? Uh, things like this. Um, so, you know, ETF maybe makes it easier for, for your general retail investor. Obviously, there's other issues involved with um, you know, what is an ETF? Are you really owning the, the Bitcoin? Are you, what, what exactly are you owning with the ETF? Uh, but that's a different topic. Yeah. Did you want to like make a comment on the custody side or no, you're good. Yeah, no, I mean, with all application with respect to regulators, whether it's ETF or a fund or basically anytime you want to be regulated, I can assure you that one of the big section on the application is going to be, how do you save key client assets? How do you keep them safe? And so, you know, that is one problem. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, independent custodians like us exist, right? Uh, to provide institutional grade custody to really satisfy the regulators and to, you know, to assure third party, you know, clients that their assets will be protected by independent third parties. So ETF is no exceptions. You can go on the prospectus, look at the filing that you'll see that there's absolutely third party, you know, custodians being appointed and some of the process are, you know, very well crafted and thought out, um, you know, with response to what the regulars are looking for. Cool. Let's go back to um, some compliance. What do you think uh, uh, coins from uh, illegitimate sources, how do you deal with this problem and, you know, from exchange or stable coin experience? Maybe uh, Peter first. 
All right. Well, one thing I was going to say is from a trader's perspective, uh, a U.S. listed ETF could be could be like a, a top just to, you know, buy the buy the rumor, sell the news type of event. Um, but it'll probably be like, I don't know, probably six months or so out. I, th- I that's kind of my projection on how long this bull market will run um, from a compliance point of view. The company I work for, we're offshore, we're unregulated, but we're trying to stay ahead of regulation. Obviously, the U.S. is the big dog in terms of, you know, they set the standard on who who can operate and who is, you know, is going to be a problem in the future. So, you know, we're trying to, to stay ahead by, you know, spending a lot of money on our compliance, making sure we do background checks on people. And obviously anybody with a criminal record is, is going to be probably kicked off our platform. So, you know, we're trying to be proactive about it instead of waiting for regulators to tell us what we can and cannot do. We're trying to, um, um, have standards so that, um, when regulators do come, we have the information available for them. Did you want to add something from a BitMEX point of view or you want to save that for later, William? So, uh, the regulators came, um, I, my name is William. And, uh, yeah, I've been a uh, Bitcoin investor since 2015, uh, equity side, not actual coin. Uh, but um, I, I would say the, uh, the challenge is that uh, the regulators want, and in my view, personal view, not the view of uh, BitMEX, is just that, you know, they, they were looking to make a point. Uh, and, uh, and it was not just like a regulator, but there was uh, multiple uh, you know, the Attorney General of Southern New York was on a, a war path, and then uh, the Commodities Trade, CTHC, CFTC, also wanted to make a point. The problem is they, they might have tried to make, like, two points at the same time, which in America doesn't work too well. Uh, so we'll see whether they get, uh, whether they overreach themselves. But seriously, they, they if you look at the... Um, uh, citizenship of all the major uh, crypto exchanges in the world, they picked the one with two Americans, right? Uh, so that's the easy one. And also the one with a very outspoken and kind of like a uh, reputation, which is uh, my friend Arthur. Uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. But I think that in terms of regulatory, um, we have uh, a new CEO at BitMEX. He came from a... Uh, you know, totally licensed, but also crypto-friendly, NFT-friendly exchange in Stuttgart in Germany. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, whether the U.S. regulatory group as it is, I think the message was at least received by uh, BitMEX Group in that they're going to be more, uh, well, very much regulatory-friendly. Because I think uh, my personal opinion is that you definitely need to have that friendliness going on. You know, there are a lot of people who have a huge amount of influence on the regulators whose businesses are going to get severely impacted in a negative way uh, by uh, blockchain and crypto, i.e. traditional financial institutions. Uh, So there needs to be a a balance. Uh, And so, yeah, our guys got smacked. And uh, you guys should all learn from it. (laughs) <laughs> but I wouldn't say don't stop, just, uh, you know, hide under the hide under the bush, you know. Awesome. Alex, do you have something to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I, first off, I don't think they're done smacking. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't, I can't, you know, see any scenario under which, uh, 
you know, Arthur and, and company and, and let's say the, our folk, the folks at, at Ripple are the last target of the SEC and or CFTC. Um, so uh, I, I think it's not, it doesn't take a huge imagination to say that the, the U.S. regulators and, and law enforcement entities uh, see the world as their as their playground. So I don't think we're done there. Um, but going back to the cautious optimism I heard around ETFs, I agree that with Gary Gensler at the SEC and, you know, uh, it's the Winklevoss twins, you know, applying many years ago as they did versus Fidelity applying a month ago, I, I think it's a different ballgame. So I, I would say, you know, that's another reason why I, I'm not calling the top of the market. That, that's something I, I share with Peter. Um, your question about like dirty coins and so forth, well, I don't know. Talk both sides of the book, right? I mean, you, you hear Peter Thiel saying Bitcoin's a Chinese financial weapon, and then on the other side saying, hey, Palantir can help, you know? So <laughs> I, I would say learn from Peter Thiel. So talk both sides of the book. So um, I, frankly, that's what I think this symbiotic thing going on between uh, Silicon Valley and uh, Wall Street on, on Bitcoin, right? Like, Wall Street guys, when, when the money printing is going on, they're having a good time, right? And then Silicon Valley can say, well, I can do something against inflation, and we have another go at it. So um, that's why I'm actually overall optimistic about, uh, yes, there are vested interests who are going to be negatively affected by, uh, by what we're talking about tonight. But uh, on the whole, I think there's a, enough ways to cut everybody in on the deal whereby, you know, this thing will, the party will continue is what I'm trying to say. Cool. I just got a message that there's a Liz from Ripple here. Maybe she wants to come and like uh, join us closer to the stage. Hey, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about you guys getting smacked. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to come, please grab a seat in the front. Um, uh, this is funny for me because usually I'm on panels, and when I mention you know the whole reg questions, people cringe. It's usually with a bunch of Bitcoin maximalists. But let's um, talk a bit about the regulation space in Taiwan and bring it back to Taiwan and. Um, how should regulations be to make it better for the crypto ecosystem here and possibly worldwide? And or even thoughts on a central bank digital currency? Let's start. Uh, I think we should start with Taiwan. Let's start with Alex. Well, I was told many years ago by none other authority than the senior fellow at AppWorks uh, not to start my business here in Taiwan because when you know I told him in 2013 about what I planned to do, he said you're much better off in Singapore and Hong Kong. And here we are, eight years on, and. I can see his point. I mean, our regulator here. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> our regulator here. I, look, I, I think a lot of it just stems from, um, you know, not having English as their uh, first language, uh, having a continental uh, legal system as opposed to common law, et cetera. But, you know, what I was going to say, actually, is that a business like ours uh, could actually not have grown up in the last eight years in Hong Kong uh, nor in Singapore. Um, the fact that we can add four to 600 retail folks uh, every day that have more or less unfettered access to their bank accounts, you can transfer $2 million Taiwan dollars a day into crypto if you so wish. This is simply not allowed in Hong Kong, where only professional investors are allowed in Singapore, it's allowed in a very uh, constricted way, where you can, via a third-party payment processor, buy a thousand Sing dollar per day. Okay, so the point I'm trying to make here is that on, on the surface, Taiwan is not a, a very, certainly not your first. It may not even be a logical choice uh, to to do a business like ours. But underneath it all, uh, if you can find your niche, Taiwan could be among the best places in Asia or at 
the very least in the Chinese-speaking world. How do we extrapolate this to other things that may, we want, may want to consider, uh, whether it's um, security tokens or, or, or DeFi or, you know, what, name your acronym, okay? Um, I suspect that there's a path there that you can carve out. Um, but again, don't don't take the conventional wisdom or the your, your your knee jerk reaction that you know if you do this type of thing, you're better off uh, somewhere else in Asia or somewhere else in the world. Uh, I would give Taiwan a second look, uh, but it, it needs to be an intelligent look. It can't just be searching in the dark for uh, for something like that. Since you, since like Coinbase is the MyCoin of the U.S., do you feel that like uh, the there's an IPO in the future in Taiwan, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the local capital market, I don't think, would support a company like ours. So, yes, we are looking at listing elsewhere. Uh, I, I think Coinbase is a nice, you know, uh, template for us. I mean, we're a scaled-down version of Coinbase. Um, and so I'm thankful for Coinbase for, for blazing this path. So, so, yes, I think to the extent that it benefits us reputationally, of course, from a balance sheet perspective and, and, and otherwise, and, and for our investors' liquidity, of course, um, Yes, I, th I think a public listing somewhere uh, on the planet makes sense for us. Peter, let's bring it back to um, your stablecoin and regulations in Taiwan. Well, with our since we're unregulated, we can we can kind of operate in many many jurisdictions. Um, obviously, our big problem is we have something that correlates with the U.S. dollar, and there's always that fear that the the hammer comes down uh, from U.S. regulators, and we we actually just settled the lawsuit recently, um, which, you know, was a, a big moment for us because, you know, having that, that legal issue hovering over, over our company was, was a big, a big problem. But, um, in terms of Taiwan specifically, I mean, like our product is, is used all over the world where, you know, our, our, our stable coin is, is heavily used in, in Asia specifically. And the reason we put it out, um, from from the beginning was because banking relationships were difficult to get. I mean, if you see the blowback from a lot of traditional finance, and especially from the banks, is um, less so now, but you know, probably four or five years ago, banks just just generally didn't want to work with crypto companies. So we had to set up other alternative means, and and uh, you know, having stablecoin is is one of those ways of going about it. Yeah. So you know, we're we're headquartered in Hong Kong, but that just purely because. You know, our co-founders are from Hong Kong. Um, our kind of first expansion beyond Hong Kong, you know, we selected Singapore. And, you know, part of the reason is because there is actually regulatory clarity from Singapore with the new payment services act out there. And also with um, how kind of supportive the monetary authority of Singapore is with respect to emerging technologies. So, for example, they would offer, you know, sandbox environment for startups to try things out under kind of you know, in a sandbox environment, try things out, you know, don't be afraid to break things and, and try it out under the watch for the regulators. So programs like this really encourage startups to try and scale up and test their product all under, you know, and be regulated at the same time. And, you know, if you exit the sandbox, you, you kind of get the full license based on, you know, whichever product they're using. So, you know, this is one example of how the regulators, especially with respect to crypto, right, or digital assets, that a lot of the regulatory clarity is still missing. It's getting a little bit more from reputable jurisdictions globally, but still, we're not still we're not there yet. So I think that Taiwan probably has the, or maybe had the opportunity, I don't know if it's past tense, or still have the opportunity to provide some type of jurisdiction-friendly environment to attract crypto talent or business to Taiwan. 
Um, but that's part of the reason why we set up shop in Singapore, not to mention this, you know, the client demands are very robust out of the Singapore entity. For me personally, obviously, I, I do understand the tech talent here in Taiwan. So, you know, for us, what I'm only looking at right now is to potentially looking at tech talent for developers. But from a business perspective, it just doesn't seem like I have the right incentive or the understanding or the support from the local regulators to entice me to open an office here. But I could be wrong about that. Comments on that? Uh, you guys feel free to like interject and like you know um, you know uh, have a comment to whatever anyone's saying. Nanju, did you want to add? Or? Um, I I think in general, you know, regulations in theory they're trying to protect investors, right? What the SEC tries to do is to protect investors that you know maybe don't know any better. They're not so called your high net wealth or accredited investors. Uh, you know, you kind of get these words thrown around. Uh, but sometimes it, it comes out of balance, right? You you want to regulate, but you want to you don't want to overregulate too. Uh, sometimes when you overregulate, then it kind of uh, stops innovation. People get they don't want to come up with new products just because they know that it comes at a high cost. It comes with a burden of uh, registering if you're you're trying to offer a security, um, if you're trading a security, etc. Um, so I, I think with the pace that cryptocurrency has moved, uh, especially in the last year or two, um, I think governments are, are kind of rushing to figure out how exactly they are to regulate this space. And uh, sometimes it's also hard when the regulators themselves don't understand the industry. Um, I think that's a, a major advantage that uh, hopefully the SEC has with, with uh, the, the new chair that we mentioned. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, whether the the individuals involved uh, in in Taiwan or, or other regulatory bodies uh, throughout the world have backgrounds in in blockchain and cryptocurrency, uh, because this will serve for sure useful in in how exactly they will regulate things like uh, money laundering, how they will regulate how is uh, cryptocurrency considered a security, or or do you have to register security and and things like this. Cool. Um, what do you guys think of uh, the adoption curve towards cryptocurrency? MyCoin, Alex, Alex, you've been saying you guys have like quite a few uh, new users every single day. Uh, what are your projections for the next few years? What are events that would accelerate this growth, or what could happen that it would just you know die down completely? Uh, who wants to take this first? Uh, maybe Peter. I think in technology, one of the uh, one of the the adoption curves that people look at is the S curve. I don't know if you guys have seen like the S curve, but you know, it starts out slowly and then accelerates. And I feel like we're in the process of that acceleration right now, but you know, over time, probably like four or five years from now, it'll, it'll mature and it'll, it'll stabilize. But I feel like right now is probably the most dynamic, one of the most dynamic periods in the last couple of years. Um, you know, there's a lot more integration, a lot more growth um, from the crypto space. And I feel like traditional finance is entering the space and, you know, probably looking to buy up some companies, exchanges, all this kind of stuff. I mean, like right now with DeFi, you're creating an, a, an entirely different parallel financial system. And, uh, you know, I think over time, this, these, these two systems will integrate and merge. My opinion is that I'm personally speaking, I'm more bullish about digital asset in more than ever. Um, and digital asset, you know, it's all encompassing. It could, it could be obviously crypto, but it could be security tokens. It could be NFTs. It could be digital bonds. You can tokenize that printer if you wanted Someone to, sent right? The facts, you know, right? Like, you know, it's, everything is tokenizable, right? So, um, one thing that I observe from my seat, you know, you know, three years ago, I wanted to talk to the banks, big banks, think Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan. They wouldn't take meetings with me. 
two years ago, okay, they start taking meetings, but say, okay, we'll look at it and we'll get back to you. Six months later, just, you know, maybe a follow-up meeting every six months, every quarter, whatever. A year ago, we're starting to get to demo, and I see some POCs out there, okay? And then finally, six months ago, you actually see, you know, some of these banks actually starting to get into the market, right? Um, so there are public announcements, like from Goldman Sachs, obviously JP Morgan, DBS is launching Singapore, Standard Chartered, they're doing something, ING is doing their own thing, um, HSBC, and, you know, all the bulge bracket names that you probably recognize, they're in various stages of getting into this market, um, whether it's tokenization, whether that's trade finance or offering, you know, crypto cert, um, currency services like buy and sell Bitcoin for the wealth, man, uh, wealth um, management uh, clients. So either way, you know, from ERC, it's I'm more optimistic than ever that the big institutional guys are co finally coming. I know we've been saying that since 2017, right? It's the big institutional money, um, but you know, I'm actually seeing actual tractions from these guys to make me believe that they're quite serious about it this time around. Having said that though, you know, if we does a 50% correction or drawdown in the next 12 months, very likely the board could just say, you know what, let's put a pause on, on this whole crypto project and evaluate. So that certainly could still be the case in the future. Um, I think adoption is going to come with the uh, mainstream kind of popularity. People want to buy Bitcoin or, or buy cryptocurrency if they see like, oh, I can make money from it or, oh, um, I can make money and it's easy to invest in it. Uh, but if you give them a lot of hurdles to um, invest or they see like, oh, this is just a, a fad or this is a scam, you know, people get get, get afraid to invest in things like this um, just because they already, I'm sure plenty of people are aware like uh, how crypto or Bitcoin, uh, you know, kind of went from nothing to 20,000 a few years back and then kind of went back to nothing. And they're like, oh, see, it's just, it's just a whole scam. And then you hear it a lot in the media, you hear it with a lot of uh whether it be politicians or big bankers, things like this. Um, so you still have a lot of people that are unsure about this, whether they want to invest in this. Um, but you see more and more, you know, with guys like Square and PayPal allowing um, investment of Bitcoin on, on their platform and, and using it on their platform, it, it makes it easier for a normal retail investor to do this. Even uh, I, I saw one of Alex's uh, retail shops, um, you know, when I walked in, I saw a bunch of middle-aged moms signing up for accounts. So, you know, this isn't your typical crowd that you, you would think, oh, wants to buy Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency. So you see that, you know, people are, are hearing about this, obviously, because of how, how much has grown, how, how much people are making from this. And, and you know, when, when people see this, then they, they, they kind of want to get involved because they want to make money, too. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anecdotes like what Andrew said, I mean, yeah, our users for the first seven years of our existence were primarily young, male, um, and then in the last six months, all of a sudden, you get all these uh, aunties, you know, uh, and they're, they're the ones with the money, in case you didn't know that. No, I, I want to point something out in case we lose sight of it, that like Bitcoin and I, I suppose our industry hasn't really come up with anything new in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, I, I think we lose sight... Uh, on the other hand, of how batshit crazy our world has become in the same amount of time. If I told you at the beginning of 2020 that within a few months, 80% uh, of the airplanes in the world would stop flying, would you have believed me? 
if I told you at the beginning of 2020 that, um, you know, within 12 months, the, the U.S. Capitol would be stormed and that a, a, a peaceful transition to power was not a assured thing in the United States, would you have believed me? If I told you at the beginning of 2020 that, you know, the Fed's balance sheet would go for $4 trillion to $7 trillion, everybody would get helicopter money of whatever it was, 1200 $1,400, bucks, you probably wouldn't have believed me. But all of these things objectively happened in the 12 the last 18 months. And in comparison, relatively, I suppose, crypto no longer looks so batshit crazy. I feel like if you're in Taiwan, like none of that really happened. It seems so far. Like what's, I have people like, oh, what's COVID? I've heard of it. I saw it on the <laughs> newspaper, but like my life isn't affected. So, so I don't think Bitcoin did anything in the last 12 to 18 months. I think the U.S. dollar just became a lot shakier. And that's why we're at 60 grand or whatever the number is today. And people are not blinking. They're like, yeah, that's the way things should be. That's why we get the antis in our shop, right? So, Well, I'd, I'd also like to add to that. There, I think there has been some improvements. Like, let's say Ethereum, like four years ago, it was CryptoKitties, you know, and there wasn't a whole lot more than that. And now you've got like 40 billion, 50 billion in DeFi, you know. You know, those are huge numbers that happened probably in the last eight, you know, 12 months. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of adoption that's going on. Yeah, I'm not saying we're not doing anything. I'm just saying <laughs> the world has gotten significantly and measurably crazier in this time, and then crypto doesn't look so crazy anymore. People are still managing companies, going to work, right? Sure, yeah. raising families, et cetera. Um, I want to, I think, Alex, I've heard you're very excited about your environmental efforts. And before I get to that, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, Bitcoin has been heavily criticized for being wasteful in energy and contributing to a global climate crisis. Um, there are others, though, that say that it is net positive towards a carbon-neutral future as Bitcoin miners will accelerate the clean energy trend. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, let's just look at the numbers. Objectively, mining sucks up a lot of electricity. There's, there's a carbon footprint associated with that. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to get into the relativistic arguments about, oh, look at HSBC's you know, carbon footprint, all those trucks pushing cash around their ATMs. No, let's just drop it. Running a blockchain requires energy and it emits carbon, full stop. What I'd like to do instead is actually try to draw maybe a more abstract observation, which is what are we, what have we achieved in the last decade or so? I think what we've done, and maybe it's an open question, this is applicable to the carbon pollution problem, is what we've done is using cryptography, we've rewarded private parties for solving some type of failure of the commons, right? So the, com the common failure was if I wanted to transact something financially, the banks weren't doing it for me, the payment processors weren't doing it for me. If I wanted to program my own money, the central banks were certainly not doing it for me. Now we have a way of doing that. And so the, the public good, the, the common, you know, the, literally the public good that has been created has been this ledger that's more or less open for anybody to use. Reward miners, which are private parties with their own P&L to maintain this ledger for us. Let's talk about carbon pollution. I'll argue that that is also failure of the commons, right? We each emit carbon, we're doing it here breathing, right? And we believe it's changing our environment in undesirable ways. The question is, can this blockchain technology, this token thing, can we use it in a way that rewards private, either individuals or entities, in the same way we reward miners for doing something that is desirable, which is either to emit less or not emit at all, or in the best case, remove carbon from the atmosphere. And years ago, um, you know, I grew up in California, so I watched very closely as the environment that I know and love 
which is the Sierra Nevada. I go there to hike in the summer and I go there to ski in the winter. Uh, in my adult lifetime, I can see it changing. And so I care about this just as a personal thing, but the business that I chose to start seven or eight years ago, even then I noticed that there was something related about these two topics. Okay, so it's an open question. We're exploring this with some of our friends. Um, can we apply this tokenization um, to create a reward and perhaps punishment system, right, for, again, individuals and entities that behave in the way that we would like to encourage, which, again, is to be on the net reduction side for carbon emissions. And I suspect that there is, okay? I don't have it cut and dry yet for, here, for, for me to present to you here tonight, but I suspect that there is. That's my take on this relationship between carbon and blockchain. There is a relationship because blockchain creates carbon, but I'm hoping that down the road that um, we can turn it around and have blockchain do something better for, for, for carbon. Is this something you're working on at the moment? Or it is, it is. So Ping and, and Joe and, and some folks, uh, some of our friends around the world, especially in Europe, uh, we're trying to apply this uh, in a meaningful way uh, in the so-called voluntary carbon markets. So very a 30-second tutorial on carbon markets, right? So the biggest uh, carbon market in the world is in Europe. It's called the ETS. That came about because there were regulations that were passed circa 2005, namely uh, an emissions cap and, in some jurisdictions, a tax. That's called the compliance market. That's what this shindig called the Congress of Parties under the United Nations, that what they get together every year to talk about, very unsuccessfully, I should add, after 25 years of this. What we're focused on is the so-called voluntary market, where corporations, uh, let's say Apple, they, they, they promise that by 2030 their supply chain will be carbon neutral. They do this voluntarily, and we want to match them with voluntary suppliers of carbon. So it could be an Indonesian farmer that doesn't cut down his forests, for instance, or of course guys like Orsted, which build wind farms. So uh, we believe that matches the characteristics of the token uh, market, and, and so that's what we're trying to to kickstart here. Cool, Joe, did you want to say something on that? Or are you cool? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Joe Russell. I am a, a technology lead for Tom Steyer. He is a, uh, a climate uh, uh, activist, uh, former presidential campaign, if any all pay attention. I had no idea that that was her title. That's cool. And Tom uh, has, since he signed the giving pledge uh, some 10 years ago with uh, other high net philanthropists, uh, one of his top line items is uh, climate change awareness. He's had an angle, obviously, in the forefront of American politics. And uh, he's gone on public rec record recently with uh, uh, recognizing the opportunity in, uh, in the crypto space with the, uh, the accord he recently signed with. And Alex, uh, is, Alex is just right in that lane, you know, that there's certainly an opportunity to bring voluntary carbon credits in a fraud-free opportunity for tracking and seeing that, you know, people can trust that this is a way that they can, you know, participate in a way to try to just recognize that, that, that climate is something that everybody wants to pay attention. Thank you. I just totally put you on the spot, but thank you for sharing, Joe. Sure. Does yeah. anyone else have a comment on um, this uh, carbon issue on the on the stage? I'll add one last thing. I wear a Garmin watch, so it helps me. It, re it reminds me of this thing called fitness. I may be, I may not have the highest fidelity to the concept, but like it reminds me every day that there is a concept. And that's what I will say about voluntary carbon. It's not going to solve the problem for us. Okay. Um, I, I suspect as, as most human 
how human incentives work. Uh, if you think about your own New Year's resolutions, right? We start the year off nice and strong, and then we probably forget about it for nine months before we try to make a Hail Mary effort you know, around Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? So I think it's going to be this way around climate change. We'll, we'll say and even do certain nice things, but it won't get real until, you know, literally the forests, well, they already are burning, but maybe when the locusts come and we don't have water and food and so forth, and then we'll get serious. And that's when the compliance markets will kick in. But before that, I liken the voluntary markets to my Garmin watch. It's like a nice way to measure progress, and it may even help in some ways. But let's not pretend that it's going to solve the problem. Cool. Thank you. Um, anyone else? I mean, in general, yeah. The, the EPA, they're guys you don't want to mess with. So if, if they got some issues uh, with, uh, you know, kind of environmental things and with mining and Bitcoin, which I'm, I'm not, you know, super familiar with, uh, you know, you, you, you want to be in compliance with them because they'll, they'll give you a lot of trouble if you're not. Uh, I think Peter had like some questions that he wanted to uh, talk amongst you guys. So maybe you guys uh, have any questions for each other. You know, one topic I'd like to talk about is uh, micro strategy and uh, some of the corporate treasuries for for Bitcoin. Um, I was just wondering if you guys had any comments on like how that helps with adoption and you know moving forward with with uh, crypto and traditional finance. Yeah, so I think with the whole microsailor and, and, and you know micro strategy, right? Converting cash on the balance sheet to to Bitcoin, I think it's kind of a watershed moment to say that okay, look, now we finally have Fortune 500 companies willing to view Bitcoin as a storage value, which has been the rhetoric by you know digital natives for for the longest time, right? So that really kind of led off, you know, kind of. Um, a trickle of you know events afterwards, right? So you, you obviously you have Tesla with with Elon Musk there, uh, May Twan in in Hong Kong, Mass Mutual, which is a really conservative Boston-based insurance company, right? You know via uh, regular vehicle with which is using NYDIG in out of New York. So the idea here is that you know now you have crypto is now finally going to the mainstream, right? You have Big for, you know, Fortune 500 reputable corporate treasuries, who's supposed to be, pub, you know, who's public companies, financials being audited by compliance, the big fours, you know, all that regulated ways, and they're actually okay with doing that. So now, all of a sudden, you know, if we were to speak with, if I were to talk with my my parents about Bitcoin 2017, they'd probably ignore me. But now, if I say things like, okay, look, you have all these, you know, big companies buying this Bitcoin. I think this will be a, a much more kind of valid argument that this is now actually becoming a truly asset class that people can invest in, whether it's for storage of value or speculation. And the, kind of the, the, the trickle-on effect from that is, you know, how do you get this exposure, right? So MicroStrategy, they, they bought Bitcoin, so they just loaned Bitcoin, okay? Sure, they go on exchange, they, they went through MyCoin, bought some BTC, that's great. Um, or, you know, with Mass Mutual, they did it through a regulated um, vehicle, which is through NYDIG. Uh, and I'm sure there are other, you know, out there with, you know, Grayscale, I think it's, it's already one of the selectable fund options in, you know, the IRA accounts by, um, for individuals and retirees, right? So I think it's one of the top 10 tradable um, tickers. So the question is, okay, well, clearly these vehicles are now being used for, um, you know, for adoption. What's next, right? So I think that kind of leads the question to, can ETF be next? Question mark. Um, yeah, I think with with uh, specifically to microstrategy, I think uh, just kind of like we've been discussing, generally speaking, it's it's allowing the the general public to 
see this uh, adoption a lot more and uh you know whether or not you want to believe it if if uh sailor had an influence on elon to you know put bitcoin on their balance sheets um yes or no but in any case uh you know tesla is on their balance sheets now um obviously the payment terminals like i mentioned before square paypal they have it on their balance sheets too um, Grayscale, obviously, running as a trust, they they have a large amount on their balance sheet. So, it becomes a question of you know are are these guys you know right? And and if you're a publicly traded company now, and then with cash reserves in your treasury, are you going to be falling behind if you don't have any Bitcoin? And if the dollar keeps on depreciating, which some people think it might because of all the money printing and possible inflation and things like this. Um, you know, it just becomes a question of, you know, do we do we adopt uh, Bitcoin on our balance sheets uh, and, and how do we go about doing this? Uh, because there, it, it's not as easy for them to just be like, OK, let's just buy Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of approvals they need to go through, shareholders, uh, um, uh, board of directors, uh, regulatory approvals, etc., um, so, you know, in general, I think it's, it's, it gives more credibility to, to Bitcoin uh, because mainly they're buying Bitcoin. They're not buying other cryptocurrencies. Uh, it gives more credibility to Bitcoin. I think as a retail investor, when you see all these big companies buying it, um, you, you feel like, okay, maybe it's for real this time. Um, uh, but in terms of, you know, you wanting to get exposure by investing in MicroStrategy because they have Bitcoin and, and using it as your proxy to, to invest in Bitcoin, I think that is another topic that, you know, you kind of have to uh, research because I'm not sure they are probably the, the best vehicle for investing in Bitcoin at, at this moment. You know, uh, a little perspective on Bitcoin is Bitcoin's a little over a trillion, uh, trillion market cap right now. Gold is about 10, 11 trillion. Global equities, probably 100 trillion. What else? Global wealth is probably 400 trillion. So if you say 1% of global wealth at 400 trillion you, and um, Bitcoin could 4X from there, if you use that litmus test, if you look at it as a replacement for gold, that's at 10 trillion. So there's still a lot of upside possible. Whether that happens or not, we'll see. But, you know, it's still really early on in this game. So DeFi is an exciting phenomenon driving, driving rapid innovation across blockchain and finance. Let's switch the topic a bit. What is your view around the value of ERC tokens associated with these projects? Or maybe some views on um, Ethereum competitor blockchains, maybe starting with, uh, who do you want to start, Calvin? I don't know. Sure, yeah. So obviously I think that's, this is one of the major call it headwinds with blockchain or at least token adoption, right? It's it's basically every chain for themselves. Obviously, Ethereum being the first one with smart contract, they're kind of the king um, in, in, in this um, field for the time being. Um, and But that also caused the problem of gas fee being very, very high right at the moment, right? So um, that's why you have all these competitor chains coming out. I mean, we were briefly talking about BSC or binding smart chain before. Um, before the call, but there are obviously likes um, the likes of Polkadot interoperability. Um, there are you know other ones like Solana um, and you know many other ones in you know proof of stake kind of chains in 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 the marketplace. All of this is really, in my opinion, a headwind to mass adoption because it kind of com brings confusion to developers on okay, well 
shoot, which which blockchain am I supposed to develop on, right? So, um, and that's just part of you know part of the game that these foundations are trying to build market shares because they believe in you know blockchain technology in the future. Um, Having said that, um, clearly with the rise of DeFi summer last year, and then you have the NFT craze, which is still largely built on on Ethereum um, blockchain. Um, you know, you have Flow that trying to, to you know from Dapper Lab trying to disrupt the well, trying to take over the NFT market. DeFi still mostly ERC, you know, Ethereum based, um, ERC twenty based tokens. Um, so the reality is, you know, until we can kind of um, solve the issue, makes it more scalable. Obviously, that's why E 2.0 is is you know in, in progress. Um, you know, I think all of this different competition is actually will hinder the adoption until a mass consolidation will occur sometime in the future. What about like Taiwan? Do you feel DeFi is a, a Taiwan's a good place for DeFi? And you guys start listing DeFi tokens. We've listed a few. Um, I wouldn't say Taiwan's a particularly great place uh, for DeFi, but I wouldn't say any place in particular is a great place for DeFi. It's wherever you want to be. And if Taiwan's the place you want to be, then, then that's the place for you. Um, theoretically, DeFi is not in any jurisdiction. Yeah, Isn't that the great thing about it, is that it's not permissioned. You can list any token on, on uh, AMM that you want. You can leverage up to 1,000x if you'd like. So, so yeah, I, I, my, my view on DeFi in, partic- in relation to CeFi is that, in my opinion, with the rise of DeFi in the last yeah, 9 to 12 months, I think we'll see a clear bifurcation where uh, exchanges like ours, little regional things, you know, we'll be compliant, we'll, be, we'll play nice with the regulators and the banks, and we'll be the on-ramps for, for this world. And then, then it's, you're off, right, in, in your own... Um, Wild West, and I, I think, whereas I think you know, CFI platforms that were a bit more permissive, or I would say a bit more lax with regulatory concerns, maybe they'll find their space a bit more constrained going forward. Especially if you know the, what we were mentioning as you know the smacking continues, right? I mean, the, I think the other shoe is yet to drop. To be perfectly honest, I mean, we, we saw last autumn the BIMX um, activity or, or the enforcement actions. We saw Ripple. Um, I just can't imagine that's that's where it ends, right? So I do think sovereign uh, authorities are going to be looking at this more closely. I think that I don't know if we skipped over the CDBC topic, but I mean that that's a trend. I mean sovereign entities are getting into this market, whether we like it or not. DeFi is going to be the forever, I would say, a haven for that, and that's good. I think we all need our, our safe spaces. The guys that touch the physical world, I'd say, like like us, then we'll do what we need to do to, to continue to operate. Can you actually, before we get to Peter, can you touch upon um, what you're busy with and MyCoin, what they're doing in, like, you know, NFTs? I know you're doing a few of these things. Yeah. Maybe let everyone know what's happening because, um, so, yeah, we can get involved. Yeah, business is good. So I spend most of my day just trying to keep the wheels on or the lights on, whatever it is. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of Taiwan dollars. So what's different, I can tell you qualitatively about this time around versus last time around was people buy the dip and they also chase on the way up. It's just buy, buy, buy. So I'm flooded essentially with Taiwan dollar liquidity. Um, some of it we, you know, match with local folks that want to sell, but a lot of it we have to source from abroad. And, and so I have a, you know, a liquidity problem when it comes to, you know, as you guys well know, the Taiwan dollar is a, a capital-controlled currency. So I'm not at liberty to convert infinite amounts of Taiwan dollar into U.S. dollar or any other dollar. And so I, that's what. Keeps me pretty busy these days, but it's a good problem, and I'm, it's a it's a 
it's, it's a it's a labor of love, I should suppose. I mean, like so many aunties are coming to the shop and saying, "Here's my million Taiwan dollar," you know. And what what are you doing to onboard them? Is there like a tutorial? Are they on yeah, YouTube? Yeah, well, that's why we did the sh that's why we did the shop, right? Um, it, they can they can see the place and, and have someone to talk to. Um, you know, we we run some tutorials, but. Um, you know, they're willing to jump through these hoops for the most part. And so that, yeah, it's encouraging to see. So Peter, answers? Um, about Ethereum, ERC-20s? ERC-20, Ethereum, other blockchains generally, DeFi. Blockchains in general, I don't think there's just going to be one dominant blockchain. I think there'll probably be like five or six. If I go back to like the dot-com analogy, Yahoo was the big player initially in the first wave, um, you know, 99, 2000, and then Google popped up. So technology is always changing on the tech, technology angle. Um, Ethereum to me is almost like a test net. You know, it's, it's slow. They're moving to Ethereum 2.0. That probably won't happen for two or three years. But all the developers on Ethereum right now, you've got like Cardano, uh, Polkadot. You've got some other smart contract platforms that I think will, will do very well. I think overall the blockchain industry is not going to go away. I wouldn't say for absolute certainty that Bitcoin is the the only game in town. I think there's there's a lot of technology and development that's happening, and I still think this is still very early innings in in this long game. Cool. So, um, if there's no one else on the panel that has anything to add or questions, just let's um, open it up. I see a lot of smart people in the room. There's like Joe. There's Ray, Jim. Uh, questions from the audience? Maybe you can come and speak into the microphone. Touch upon it briefly there. We see this certain adoption of governments adopting digital currencies with their own, and you can potentially see some of the bigger governments each having their own digital currency. So how? And I see, I hear a lot of um, positivity around Bitcoin and Ethereum. But how do you think that affects the future of the dominant digital currencies now, when you have every major country having their own digital currency in the future? I have a particular take on. Um the, the notion of sovereign digital currencies. I think it's very clear why the People's Bank of China is doing what they're doing. Um, China is, depending on the time, the number one or second largest holder of uh, U.S. Treasury bills. And so money creation in the U.S. affects them negatively. Uh, and then number two, they're also the subject of uh, an increasing number of American financial sanctions. So wanting to... Uh, you know, internationalize the RMB and do it in a way that's uh, resistant to American censorship, I, I think it makes all the sense for them. The Biden administration is kind of wringing their hands or their hair around this PBOC um, thing. I, I think they have probably less to worry about than they may think. Um, and I base that observation on some guidance that came out of the OCC, which is under the U.S. Treasury, uh, on January 4th of this year. I am not sure if it's uh, some master plan, some awesome strategy coming out of Washington, or whether it's inadvertent. But this uh, OCC finding, you know, which opened the door for financial institutions in the U.S. to use stable coins for settlement, uh, to me, it settles the question. W would you? prefer to use some circumscribed version of the RMB or a U.S. dollar that flows freely on, on any number of the five or six blockchains that Peter mentioned, right? I, I think the, the answer is obvious. And this uh, move alone, I think, will cement uh, the U.S. dollar's role as um, the, the settlement currency for the foreseeable future. 
does this ensure uh, the uh, the power of the American government to censor or to censor uh, to sanction transactions? I'm not so sure of because it's obviously harder to censor Ethereum than it is to censor SWIFT, right? Uh, but as far as settlements concerned, you know, the U.S. dollar is over 40 percent uh, market share in the, on the planet right now. I see that continuing. I don't think there's a lot to fear from the RMB in that regard. But perhaps with Palantir and Peter Thiel's help, maybe you know Ethereum blockchain will become as tightly surveilled as uh, you know HSBC and Citi transactions. So, if that's a technically solvable problem, that's the way it's going to get solved. Well, I think with what you have with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, is you have you know part part of it is a parallel financial system, but also you know the role of gold in the past would be this um, non-counterparty risk store of value. And also a means of exchange if you could move it around. And I think Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies will kind of act in a, in a similar fashion where they're not government tied. Because right now you have fiat currencies which are closely tied to the, the governments with, with, with which they're issued. But you'll have this uh, alternative. Like I think Bitcoin will probably stay around for a while and will be something that you could, you could have some value and still move around in the future. I, I find the CBDC or the digital yen very, very fascinating. Um, obviously, I think the, one of the many reasons that um, PBOC is doing this, right, is obviously it's what they've been doing with Yuan for, for a while, which is trying to be the reserve currency of the world, eventually, right? I mean, the Yuan is obviously making progress. They were introduced to IMF special, you know, special drawing right basket many years back, um, and most of the commodities price is, is in U.S. dollar. So I think it's a clear kind of ambition for the PBOC to try and overtake that and starting with the digital Yuan with that respect. Um, I mean, most of us that have been in China would know that, you know, there's really, it's, it's 50% is more than 50% is cashless, right? Like, I don't even have a WeChat Pay or, or Alipay, and I, it's, it's, I, I'm looked down upon when I carry cash, right? Like, even like the, the, the stands um, on Tuesday, they, they don't even want to work with me or sell me stuff because I didn't have Alipay or WeChat Pay. Um, but I think it's very clear that what they're trying to do from a the party's perspective, from the government's perspective, the inherent nature of blockchain is everything's transparent, right? So obviously there's motives behind having this type of uh, mechanism. But secondly, you know, when one day, when I do believe that all assets can be digitized and will be digitized longer term, you know, why would you not use a, a central bank backed currency versus a stable coin, which is technically not backed by the government? So you have the sovereign risk, which is relatively, you know, based on the credit rating, however you want to determine that. Um, but eventually in the future, you know, um, the sovereign or CBDC will really be the predominant way of, you know, transacting in the future, is my personal opinion. And that's also the reason why, you know, the ECB, the Bank of England, uh, BOJ, you know, basically all the major um, um, central banks around the world are studying this. Um, the Fed is as well. Just they're, they're already said they're, they're not going to be the, the first mover on this. Yeah, I think uh, with the digital yuan, I think China really wants this to happen uh, for a lot of reasons that Alex already mentioned. Um, I think, uh, you know, you, you see everything that's going on with uh, a lot of the, the big companies in China, a lot of the big wealth, you know, China, the Chinese government wants to re rein this in. You see what's ha happening with uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba. Um, you know, I, I think personally, to me, honestly, I think China would want nothing better than to um, 
cancel out all these middlemen like Alipay and WeChat and all that and, and just have a digital yen because they basically control the whole system at that point. They know where the money is going, who has what, how it's being transacted. I mean, this is essentially what they've wanted all this time. And, you know, China is also the only place where something like this could just happen immediately because basically it's like you want to pay for something, you want to use your money, it's digital yen now. You have no other choice. So, you know, like it or, or you don't spend. Um, so and, and, and for the other reasons that, you know, Alex brought up, uh, uh, you know, the, the sanctions that China has to deal with because of the, the U.S. banking system, um, you know, the U.S. dollar, everything. Uh, this is mo even more incentive for them to try to make this to work because then the U.S. loses a lot of leverage from U.S. dollar. They lose a lot of leverage from banking sanctions. And, um, you know, it's I'm not saying it's going to replace U.S. dollar or anything like that. But you got a lot of other countries in this world where currencies are not stable. What if, uh, you know, and the whole talk is, you know, with the, the Winter Olympics and in China, like a lot of international countries will be coming. Um, they, they, they want people to use the digital yen, um, allow them to, you know, use it with their own uh, local currency and then um, convert into digital yen and then continue to use it when they go back home. And if you're from this country where, um, you know, your currency can just be invalidated tomorrow, what if, you know, you can have a digital yen that, that you can feel safe with and it won't just disappear? Um, you know, I think China's really trying to, to push this uh, agenda and if they can be successful, I think it would have huge ramifications for the entire financial world. I wanted to clarify. I, 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 what I, was, I, I agree with what the two gentlemen just said. I, I, what I was saying about uh, the OCC's ruling around stable coins and how that's going to kind of cement the U.S. dollar settlement, uh, that, that is not mutually exclusive with the PBOC's digital yuan uh, succeeding within certain confines. Um, and, you know, you, you saw right after the, the Alaska meetings between the two foreign ministers, right, the, the deal with, uh, well, they met, the, he met the Russian foreign minister, and then there's this 25-year deal with Iran. So you see the outline forming, which is, you know, within China's sphere of influence, this was going to be a huge success. They're going to settle petroleum purchases from Iran with this. Same thing with LNG purchases with, with, uh, with Russia. They'll sell their stuff to, to these countries using digital yuan as well. But I think this, by the same token, you know, the, the limited success that Chinese Internet companies have had outside of China, the multitude of reasons we don't have to get into here, but I think for the same reasons... Uh, that they're held back. I mean, the digital yen will be held back outside of China's sphere of influence. Thank you. Um, we usually end by now, but we have a lot of like more questions coming, and I'd really like Liz to uh, to come up. I thought I was just coming to a happy hour, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so uh, you know these views are just my own. But um, I think you know on the CBDC question, I do think what's interesting is. Um, I do think it's really a data play, as you said. It's not necessarily about, um, you know, sort of democratizing flow of payments and, and so forth. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, today the way that we use money, it's already in a digital form, right? Like how many of us actually, you know, carry suitcases of cash when we're transacting? I mean, it's almost never. And so, you know, I do think with CBDCs, um, with China and other countries, you're still going to run into questions of capital controls, right? I mean, I'm sure the Chinese government is not going to let the digital yuan sort of um, 
you know, freely circulate and trade without controls of that they currently have on the physical yuan. Um, and so I do think, you know, in terms of our industry and our, you know, sort of uh, when we think about what is the potential of decentralized finance, what is the potential of digital tokens, there's still going to be a need for bridge currencies, right, between CBDCs. I can't imagine, even if a, CB, even if a CBDC is um, compatible ac across uh, multiple blockchains, you're still going to have an issue around, so if you have a digital yuan, if you're trying to spend that in Nigeria, essentially, do you have a merchant in Nigeria that's willing to accept that, right? And so you still need the bridge. You still need to, the bridge to convert to whatever digital token or fiat that your merchant in whatever your destination country is willing to accept. So I do think that this is, I think there's a lot of hype around CBDCs, but I think at the end of the day, it goes back to what is it that sovereigns care about? How much control do they want? And I do think it's 100% a data play. Mm. Because right now, countries can track. Um, so I, and the reason I say it's a data play is because I, it's primarily on Sorry, I've had like three glasses of wine. We all have. We all have. It's okay. Again, I thought I was coming yeah, to a happy hour. It's a drinking But I do think, you know, at the end of the day, right, like, at, you know, they want to know who's paying their taxes, right, who's paying off in terms of corruption money, and, um, and then they also know sort of, sort of what are their, what are their citizens spending on, right? So it's, it's, I think it's, it's. I think when people talk about sort of CBDCs, is like, oh, you know, these com these these countries are so open-minded. They're trying to, you know, sort of be innovative, and they're trying to sort of democratize finance. I, I I don't really see that. So. You should believe that argument like you believe Facebook's argument, right? So yeah. no, nobody well, believes it. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a hundred percent. These views are my own. <laughs> It'll help with your social score, also. It'll be part of your social score. Well, does anyone want to add to that? Or if not, let's get the next question from Joe. With the explosion of DeFi valuations, like how much, what's your view on how much of it is due to like the intrinsic utility of these platforms versus intelligently crafted tokenomics? Because as we see some of these platforms start maturing, a lot of the, I guess, pomp that's created by, you know, the inflating these tokens is going to start to go away. And then project will start to be, as they come mature, they'll start being valued on, you know, traditional finance metrics. And when we look at a lot of these popular tokens, a lot of them um, are solely governance tokens, whereas some actually have dividends where you, you can apply traditional finance metrics to value them. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? I think we're in a pump and dump cycle. You know, like Dogecoin has no utility whatsoever, but it's, I think it's done like a 400x. You know, like... Right now, you're just in a bull market. You know, like Bitcoin's the big dog. Everything else kind of follows. And, um, you know, everything's going to pump. Everything's going to crash. You know, it's just kind of the, the upward cycle. You know, nothing goes in a smooth line. Everything goes, you know, boom and then bust, boom and then bust. But, you know, over a long period of time, it's, it's an upward movement. I mean, right now, I'm, I'm literally seeing ICO 2.0. It's from, from my seat. Um, that's not to say that they're not reputable projects out there on trying to build a bridge, um, you know, via decentralized finance. But it's also very evident to me that there are a lot of opportunistic projects out there 
offering, you know, tokenomics, government tokens, um, sell that to investors, get listed on major exchanges, dump it on the first day, 10x, after 10x, 50x. Um, this is very common practice right now. So invest with caution. Yeah, um, let's have the next question. But um, before, did you have a question? Before we wanted to get there, I wanted to ask everyone to give some input on um, what should people be cautious of? Uh, you know, we're all talking about crypto here. So maybe, Peter, you can start with that. I think of the coins that are out there right now, there's probably, I don't know, 6,000. 99% of them are going to zero. So that gives you, what, 60 long, you know, long-term plays, but it's not much different than the, you know, I keep going back to the dot-com era, but you know, there were, you know, I mean, the, the Dogecoin is probably the equivalent of like pets.com, you know, it's like, it's kind of a joke, you know, but it, it pumped up and it, and it, and it dumped. So, you know, this is just, again, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And this is the cycle we're in right now. Uh, in terms of caution, I, I think, uh, I kind of touched on it in terms of, you know, if, if, you want to be involved in the space, uh, you know, it, it, purchasing the, the cryptocurrency directly, um, you know, that's one thing. But if you want to be involved from public markets, um, whether it be, you know, through one of these vehicles like MSTR or GBTC or, or waiting for an ETF, um, I think um, I'd be cautious to, to understand, well, what exactly do they hold? Um, what are you investing in? Is there a premium? Is there a discount? Why is there a premium? Why is there a discount? Um, and I mean, even with ETFs, you know, if any of you read, um, it, it, most of you probably know, you know, the big shore with Michael, um, Burry and how he thinks ETFs are a bubble and things like this. So, you know, there, there's a lot of questions to ask whether ETFs are, are valid tools to invest in, um, you know, kind of the underlying, uh, so I, I'd be cautious about, you know, what exactly you're investing in if, if you're using a proxy such as uh, stocks uh, through the public markets for cryptocurrency. All right. Um, if there's one, any one more question, we'll take another last question. We usually um, end by now and start on drinking. And I also want to say thank you to, uh, to Mosi and uh, Greenstaff for coming and helping out with the sound and stuff. But Dan, okay, come on. One thing we're wondering as uh, developers um, <clears throat> is like we, we like you, you guys already touched a little bit on this question, which is so we have all these uh, chains and on Ethereum we have all these L2 technologies coming up right now that <clears throat> are going. This is Dan from um, Nexus Mutual. Mutual. <laughs> I forgot. For you. So from a developer perspective and I guess from a product perspective, uh, what what do you guys think is going to happen in terms of like um, liquidity fragmentation because of these technologies and how will that affect like products that are being released right now so say you go on an l2 that eventually dies off or <clears throat> you're uh you're you're taking you're picking one of these technologies that proves that it's it's not the right fit and do you think ethereum is going to have issues because of uh because of the way this is uh this is being released right now like all of these l2 technologies released in in sequence um yeah that's a tech question i'm not in this for the tech <laughs> I don't know anything about tech, honestly, but I don't have a concrete answer for you, but you're a developer. I, I think um, you're the best wind vane that we have in this industry. Where's the mojo in your community, right? Which protocol are your peers kind of directing their energy at? I think that's probably the best indicator for which survives at the end. And, and, and since I've been involved with Ethereum, at least for the past five years, the answer has been Ethereum up, up until now. I don't know that that will remain the case going forward. 
Um, and, and so the moment you see large numbers of your peers abandon Ethereum for developing projects, then that's probably time for you to pack your bags as well, you know? And it, by the same token, I mean, whichever new protocol is attracting large numbers of your peers probably deserves a good amount of your attention. Uh, but up until now, I don't see any other of the half a dozen, you know, blockchains having, you know, silver bullet fashion solved the problems that Ethereum is facing. I kind of briefly touched upon it earlier, right? I mean, this is part of the headwinds, right? It's, it's, are we doing, you know, should we build on Ethereum? Should we build on Polkadot? Okay, if, if it's Ethereum, you have layer two, ZK rollup, is it optimism, is it Omise, right? So, so all of these, you know, options is actually a headwind for a developer like, like yourself, right? So, you know, because everyone's kind of vying for market share, right? And, and they all kind of have their own kind of niche um, you know, pros and cons, right? So, I mean, ultimately, you know, most of the chains will die and there will be, you know, top four or five will, you know, basically concentrate at the top to, um, to really build upon and, and move forward. Yeah, I'm just stretching. I, you know, I, I've been replaying like the last five years of Ethereum in my head, right? I mean, when I got involved, it was around a buck. It promptly shot up to a thousand within 12 to 15 months, and then it tanked back at 100. People thought that was the end. I'm not sure why it's at two grand right now. To be perfectly honest, like, is it DeFi? Is it the layer two? St I, I have no idea, honestly. Um, all I'm trying to say is that um, you know this journey is unavoidable. I think for any developer community, and, and so. Just keeping it close to the metal, keep it real. I mean, like, you know, the, 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 just because you fork Ethereum doesn't mean you solve Ethereum's problems, right? So, um, yeah, I have still some faith. I'm biased, I, I'm, I should admit, but I still have some faith that the developer community around Ethereum will solve the issues that we're facing right now. Yeah, we need to, like, give a lot of the, you know, inspiring dev community a lot of hope and and push them to do and build very cool things for everyone's benefit um i just want to say thank you alex you know you you're such a busy guy thank you for coming here thank you ping for um pushing this through thank you for the other all the other speakers i never thought that we would have such a global viewpoint here in taiwan i think you know thank you uh, not thank you but because of covid there's been so many influx of of talent and people that are relocated here uh, in the audience i see a lot of um you know, new faces that I've never seen before. Thank, thanks, William. So, yeah, if there's any, no, not any other last remarks from our, um, our speakers, then um, let's start the drinking. <laughs>